Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you for joining us today, everybody. We have David Brin on the line. And David, I, I sincerely doubt that our audience is going to need a whole lot of introduction to you, but why don't you go ahead and just give us the whole arc of your life in as much or as little detail as you'd like. Oh, well, I guess I'm civilization appreciates me best as a science fiction author. At least they keep nagging me to write more of the stuff. People think I'm a professional science fiction author because I've, I've done pretty well. You know, Hugo Awards, novels in 25 languages, a movie, some in the works. But in fact, I, what I am is a dilettante. Um, and I um, poke into a wide variety of things. Uh, I'm, I serve on NASA commissions, for example, NASA's Innovative and Advanced Concepts Program, NIAC, which is their sort of mini micro DARPA. They uh, invest in the very, very just this side of, of science fictional concepts that often bear fruit. Um, and I still do some science and um, a fair amount of public speaking, though nowadays I mostly do it for free. Oh, yes. That's the yeah. interesting COVID switch here. Yes, yes. Um, and um, and I, I've been known to help out some younger authors now and then, so... In any event, uh, yeah, just uh, just an old fart of science fiction. I remember when I was the hot young thing in the field. <laughs> well, very nice. Okay, so in order to help you warm up a little bit here, I wanted to throw you a nice softball. So in an interview you did with Reason TV, you noted that the idea of lifting dolphins, chimpanzees, and other animals up to the level of human intelligence raises all these interesting questions about informed consent. But it occurred to me that this would also serve as a lens into the moral foundations of your worldview. So I wanted to ask, given that we've got people making philosophical arguments in favor of voluntary human extinction and non-existence, why do you think it's good to be alive and what is it that makes life worth living? Well, you know, as Carl Sagan said, um, life has reached the point, at least in this one mote of this one galaxy, where it can contemplate itself. It can ask questions like the question you just asked. Um, I'm known for, among other things, you know, the postman and things like that, and some nonfiction. There's a uh, series of novels called The Uplift Universe, in which I took a concept that I, I did not invent, and that is humans raise up and increase the intelligence of some of the animals around us. Um, Cordwainer Smith did it, H.G. Uh, Wells did it in, uh, in uh, the island of Dr. Moreau, Pierre Boulle, of course, in Planet of the Apes. There were others, the story of Prometheus. But in every case, uh, it was done as a finger-wag morality tale of what if we do this, as in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and we do it badly. 
this is we, it's an exercise of hubris and we make them slaves. Um, and then we get our just desserts. Um, I was getting bored with that. I think those stories were wonderful, self-preventing prophecies. And I think that that's one of the most important concepts we could cover in this call is that of the self-preventing prophecy and the zero-sum game. And we can get to that. But you have to move on. And so I was wondering, what if we were to have a civilization that actually read Frankenstein, that actually read Planet of the Apes, that actually watched the movies and were changed by them and decided not to treat them, these new beings badly, but instead welcome them as fresh minds for our civilization to increase our diversity, which is the obsession of this particular weird American culture, and that is constantly expanding the circle of inclusion. And it's a cause for a great deal of our political ferment right now. So I decided to say, well, what if, what if we actually tried to do it right? And so that's what's, that is what's different and original about the Uplift series. Now, um, some recent science has really laid bare just how interesting this is in the context of the Fermi paradox, which I'm sure a lot of your audience know is a very bad terminology for what I call the great silence uh, in a paper back in 1983, and, and that's a more evocative term. It's the silence out in the galaxy. We see, we hear no signs of the others that we thought ought to be there. And one of the explanations is given by science in that we look around ourselves today, and it's not just as when I started writing the Uplift series, dolphins and chimpanzees who are borderline sapient and might be uplifted. We now know that just behind dolphins and chimps are the other great apes um, and baboons and the sea lions, elephants for sure, um, a, a number of others, including parrots, crows, and some argue um, cephalopods like, like the larger um, octopi. All of them capable of some degree of signaling basic semantic meaning through sounds or images, uh, all of them capable of some degree of tool manipulation. It seems as if nature says to uh, complicated beings, thus far shall be easy. Many of you shall reach this point. But beyond this, nature and Darwin are stingy and they all crowd against the same ceiling, and I would guess that Velociraptors crowded against the same ceiling. They never had a space program, and that's why there are no more Velociraptors. So the real question is, how come we busted through that ceiling, and we didn't just bust through it, we shattered it, we atomized it, we vaulted ahead. And there's a very interesting piece of science recently. In my novel, Existence, I talk about the first of the great renaissances of, that humans experienced, which pretty clearly took place 35 to 40,000 years ago. When all of a sudden, within a few centuries, our toolkit multiplied by a factor of three or four. And suddenly we were painting on the walls of caves, well, not quite suddenly, that oversimplifies, but you know, burying our dead with flowers and beads and grave goods. Um, exterminating 
distant relatives. That's very human, too. Um, and what happened then was we became a species that was able to reprogram itself, because this was not the last time this happened. We reprogrammed ourselves again another 10,000 years after that, and another 10,000 years after that. And then with writing, you know, another 5,000 years after that, then another 2,000 years after that. Um, and we're going through one of these vast reprogrammings right now, as we speak. And they're always filled with ructions and, and, and fury and, and pain. So, David, um, it occurs to me that uh, when you talk about the great silence of space, that, I mean, we've led to been led to believe that there's there's got to be other civilizations on uh, other planets around uh, around the universe. But any other creatures that are born on a different planet are going to be raised with different gravities, with different atmospheres, with different food sources, with different predators, um, and uh, uh, everything is going to be different about them. So science fiction. Uh, in, in a lot of cases has led us to believe that um, there's going to be a lot of humanoid creatures coming from other planets when that seems like a real stretch in my in the, my way of thinking is um, ha, have you have you given thought to uh, to that concept well um, if people are welcome to order in a very obscure and rare book of mine called contacting aliens which is not one of my nonfiction books. Um, I have nonfiction books that um, these fellows will link to underneath the, um, the description below. Um, but no, it's it contacting aliens. This shows the diversity of different kinds of aliens in my uplift universe. And a lot of them aren't, aren't humanoid. A lot of them are weird, as weird as I can make them. And of course, the galaxy will come up with much weirder for instance, we've just in the last 15, 20 years figured out that Europa and Enceladus are not rare, that these uh, moons that have ice roofs over liquid water oceans are maybe among two, just two out of perhaps as many as 12 in our solar system. So not only have we found out that there are zillions and zillions of planets out there, and many of them um, Earth range, uh, orbiting in Goldilocks zones, but uh, even the most um, poisonously radioactive, radiation-rich um, star is likely to have, be an abode for life because there are very likely, no matter what the Goldilocks zone, very likely Europas and Enceladuses and Ceres and Plutos out there with liquid water oceans. So, you know, how do you, how do you deal with a situation in which life has so many test tubes to erupt in? Um, even if life occurring is one of the major rare elements of the Drake equation, um, it's still probably absolutely everywhere. As I said, I think the... Um, factor F sub I or F sub C for a truly uh, technological civilization, I think that's in my top 10 of explanations. Um, up there with feudalism, because um, 
I believe feudalism is a trap that has snared 99% of human cultures that had agriculture were taken over by males, thugs, with swords or even axes, stone axes, and um, took other men's women and wheat. It's a recurring pattern. It's the great enemy of freedom that's occurred in 99% of human cultures. And there are forces trying to make it happen again here. Uh, we, we, have a, we may be among the few species in the galaxy ever to escape that trap by um, a method called the Periclean experiment that Periclean Athens and Da Vinci's Florence tried and that we've been more successful at, but it's still a very, very um, fragile thing as we're, as we're learning, as we look around ourselves right now in this period of time. So um, there are a number of explanations for the Fermi paradox. Uh, I think uh, I rate rarity of human level sapience um, and good judgment because uh, only 10,000 years after we got cities, we started realizing that we'd better be ecological. And this brings us to, you know, the self-preventing prophecy, because one of the things that got us this awareness um, that we need to take care of this planet was science fiction. Um, uh, movies like Soylent Green, books like Silent Spring, uh, these recruited tens of millions of people to realize that uh, if we're going to get out to the stars, we we're, we better not poison the planet till we get out there. Um, another self-preventing prophecy uh, family was Doctor Strangelove, another science fiction story, failsafe on the beach. All sci-fi stories um, about the last Babylon, for example, um, about uh, nuclear war, and. While the Defense Department said this is ridiculous at the time, later retired generals admitted that these movies all made them terrified and made them fix their procedures so that we didn't have any more accidental or on-purpose Hiroshima's. So science fiction has played a very, very important role. And later on, I'll tell you about TASAT, T-A-S-A-T, which is a project that I've been engendering that could help science fiction to be even more helpful. Okay, so you, you teed that up really nicely there for me. Thank you. Um, I have several questions that I want to ask you about science fiction. And building on what you just said, I, I wanted to inquire as to whether or not you agree with Neil Stevenson, who said that science fiction has taken a kind of morbid turn and that we need to get away from the dystopias and start thinking more about the greatness and the possibilities that are, that are presented by an open universe. Well, Neil is absolutely right, and he's absolutely a genius. Um, I think he's brilliant. He is, um, he is. Uh, the, the, um, there are many people who agree with that, um, but um, um, our, our hosts this evening will likely put below the, um, below the, the, the description a link to my uh, essay called The Idiot Plot, or just Google my name and idiot I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, an idiot plot. <laughs> if, you, if you don't include plot, um, I think you may get some opinions of me by various, <laughs> various folks out there. Um, but the idiot plot is basically the cheap out 
that movie directors and authors and screenwriters use to do the one thing they have to do in order to sell tickets or sell books, and that is to keep their likable heroes in jeopardy for 90 minutes of film or 600 pages of a novel. Now, that's absolutely necessary. I do it, too. You have to create Jeopardy because that is the modern storytelling motif. People uh, get gripped by it, and they will turn the pages. They will sit in the theater. They'll grip the armrest. Um, that's fine. But in order to create that tension and peril, 90% of authors, screenwriters, and producers, and directors cheat. They simply create an idiot situation in which the assumption is that my heroes, my protagonists, are not members of a civilization. There's no use dialing 911 because no one will answer. Or if they answer, they, they'll be clumsy and, and, and inefficient. Or if they're efficient and they send help, it won't arrive on time. Or if it arrives on time, they'll be incompetent. Or if they arrive on time and they're competent, that's a sure sign that they are in cahoots with the villains. Um, now, there are exceptions to this, and I could name quite a few. And these are actually movies and the novels that you remember well. Because the other actually worked for a living. They actually, they actually provided you with an original reason why um, help wasn't available. My favorite of these is an obscure movie, Julia Roberts, called Sleeping with the Enemy. And at the end of, near the end of the movie, the climax, she has her gun on her ex-husband who's hunted her down. And she picks up the phone and says, and dials the operator and says, please connect me with the police. And the, and the, and the husband sneers, ha ha, you think that a restraining order is going to stop me? I, 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 even, if you, even if you get me into jail for six months, all it will do is increase my resolve. And then she says to, to the phone, hello, police. Um, I need to report that I just shot an intruder. <laughs> wow. You see, that's, that's a writer who surprises you because the system works. It's just not working well for her. Very nice. Yeah. Well, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is whether or not it would be possible to write fiction where institutions work really well and they are in some sense main characters or heroic, and that answers it quite nicely. Well, yeah. No, it, 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 there's a lot more to it because Soviet science fiction institutions were always the heroes um, because they, they were propaganda. They had a different need than keeping the hero in jeopardy. Now, what we have is propaganda pouring from the greatest propaganda mill ever created by humanity. It's called Hollywood. And four out of the six messages are wholesome, at least from our perspective. But then again, I would think so because I was raised by Hollywood. And that's the thing that I urge people to do is always look in a mirror and say, why do I have this opinion? Why am I, do I self-righteously have the political opinions that I have? Just because my kind of person has been oppressed? Or do I have them because there are 
systematic reasons for having them. But let me just say what the, the four positive messages of Hollywood are. One, number one, suspicion of authority. You, you, the first five minutes of almost any film you've ever liked, there's some kind of authority figure to be resisted. It could be uh, Independence Day nasty uh, genocidal aliens, or it could be a mother-in-law. Uh, you know, spanning the whole spectrum there. Though some mothers-in-law, I suppose, are <laughs> hard to tell from the Independence Day. <laughs> I have a very nice one. Okay. Um, in any event, you bond with the audience, your character with the audience, by giving them authority to defy. And this is actually unusual in the course of human history that a civilization would inculcate all of its young people from an early age with that motif. Um, number two is tolerance. Number three is diversity, which gives people uh, something to be angry about. And number four is eccentricity. You'll find that almost always in these films, the protagonist ex exhibits some eccentric trait. Um, and possibly they suffer because of it. And this bonds with the audience, even though it's not the same eccentric trait that the audience members have. It's just, this is an eccentric, I'm an eccentric. So these are all four p positive things, but and your audience will think so because they were raised by this. But we've already touched on the two cancerous uh, ones. Uh, in most films, there is a lesson. One, no institution is ever to be trusted. And two, your neighbors are all sheep. When in fact, any of you who got in trouble, you would dial 911 and be livid if you didn't immediately get skilled professionals leaping to your aid. Even now, uh, despite what we've learned. And if you needed help sooner than that, you'd knock on a neighbor's door. And one of the first three doors you, you knocked on would, would say, hold on a second, and the guy would be back with a shotgun. Click, click. Let's go. Um, so it's not that the propaganda is ill-intended. It's that we need to be a people who are more aware of the propaganda messages and to say, ah, that's this one. Ah, that's that one. And then we can pick and choose which ones to accept. Now, am I a spoil sport? Am I fun to watch movies with? Ask my poor wife. <laughs> as, as I try to teach myself, control myself from pointing out which messages we've just been shown. <laughs> By the way, the suspicion of authority thing is a sliding scale. The more badass the villain, the more institutions are allowed to be somewhat competent in order to fail so that the good guy can be more seen as more competent. So the Joker is so badass that the Gotham City police are allowed to seem as if they've got good SWAT teams so that he can thwart them, put them in danger, and then it's Batman who comes to them. <laughs> the extreme example of this is Independence Day, where the aliens are so overwhelmingly powerful that the United States military and government are allowed to be simultaneously competent and good. 
<laughs> Something you never see. So, oh, just, 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 just so they can be just confident enough <laughs> to help the requisite two heroes save the day. By, by hacking an alien computer with a Mac. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are times, look, I am willing to dial down my IQ. Otherwise, I would never enjoy another movie again. <laughs> One of my favorite films, The Fifth Element, I dialed down my mental age to six and my IQ down to 35. But it became really fun when you did that. Oh, because it didn't offend my morality and it didn't offend just the sense of joy that, that Luc Besson poured across us from the screen in that wonderful film. <laughs> it's just so joyful. And I think that goes back to your original message, your original question. Why can't we have some joy? And the reason why we have so many damn dystopias is not that dystopias aren't necessary uh, lessons. They are absolutely necessary warnings. And, and I wrote one or two. But if you're simply doing it as a cheat in order to have something for your 17-year-old teenagers to shoot arrows at, um, without any commentary about how this, the world came to be that way, or anything useful as a warning, then, you know, go, go bugger yourself. I'm not hungry for that kind of game. Right. Uh, so, David, I, um, I imagine you spend uh, about as much time thinking about the future as I do. And um, there's, there's lots, um, lo lots of work that I do in the area of scenario planning and taking a technology and pushing it forward and trying to uh, philosophize about that technology and how it affects us. But um, let, let me ask you this, this one question, and this is about one of our emerging technologies now, which is quantum computing. Um, will, will quantum computing make the skill of a watchmaker more valuable or less valuable in the future? You mean, um, you mean like um, uh, Dr. Manhattan's dad? Uh, <laughs> uh, somebody who's playing around with gears and gadgets and and well, in, in my novel, in my in my um, second uplift trilogy, Brightness Reef, Infinity Shore, Heaven's Reach, this um, colony of of six alien races and humans um, are hiding under the forests of this planet, and they don't dare have computers because those are detectable. So they create analog mechanical computers. So that's fun. Um, one could envision situations in which we would have to do that sort of thing. No, I think that the reason why we're going to have all sorts of analog and geared computers and things like that is the same reason why we have more blacksmiths in America today than during the Wild West. There are more sword makers in um, America or Europe today than there were in the high middle ages. Um, there are, uh, there are more horses than there have been at any point in time since 1910. 
Why? Why? There are people jumping out of airplanes with surfboards. The reason is because of what I've called the age of amateurs. Um, if we get everything that the machines ought to be giving us, and they turn out to be loyal, now mind you, I wrote the ultimate Isaac Asimov novel, that a Foundation's Triumph, that tied together all his loose ends. His, his wife, uh, his widow, really liked it, called Foundation's Triumph. It's... Um, and all of that. So, but believe me, I'm I'm very cognizant, steeped in the whole, all the notions of laws of robotics and all that sort of thing. And I give talks about AI, and I'll give you a link for some. But you know, assuming that we manage to have a soft landing and the AIs merge with us, as I've portrayed in some stories, or they're loyal to us, or they pat us on the head and, and take care of us. Um, under any of those circumstances, all right, so we're all rich. What's the fear? The fear is that we'd become lotus eaters and useless. But so far, add leisure and plenty of food to people, and you get a distribution. We've seen this in America for three generations, four generations. And we've seen a burst of obesity and lethargy, but also we've seen a burst of uh, sports of all kinds, um, new sports, creative sports, um, athleticism like nobody's ever seen before. Um, and we're seeing this fantastic uh, burst of pastimes and hobbies. Um, and one result is that no uh, pastime or skill of the past is going unexplored and unperfected by modern hobbyists. And, and, and then extended. And that's, that's, that's absolutely amazing. So what it shows is the diversity of humanity. Some of us become lotus eaters, and some of us absolutely refuse. Uh, amateur science is is greater than it ever was and unlike other priesthoods of the past scientists welcome amateur scientists who are willing to at least work the game and not leap up in the middle of a gathering and say i know the answer you fools you know if, if you if you're willing to participate in a mature way, amateur scientists are more than welcome. I know I was when I was 16. So if we go back to um, this, this idea of watchmakers, uh, I want to ask you, this will sound like a totally silly question, but the, the guy who invented the clock, how did he know what time it was? <laughs> well, well, these are... These are Unusual questions. Uh, <laughs> um, I like to break break well, them all down, I mean, David. Noon, noon, and sunset were uh, things that were easily measurable, and once you pegged them, then you could um, develop the ability to uh, time when the North Star. Uh, I mean, time when midnight comes by the movement of the stars. So this was not a this was not a difficult problem. Right, I understand. Um, the uh, 
I'm not sure I, I get your overall point. <laughs> I don't think there was one that was just a funny one, funny question to, to see how you'd process it. Uh, I see. I see. <laughs> well, I, 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 uh, I have some gear to time pieces. Uh, one of the funnest things we did with our son was to make uh, some of these lovely kits where you, the escapement you know, comes in the kit and then you build all the gears and, and you make an, a pendulum clock, simply make it from scratch. It's, it's a lovely thing. So we've said a lot about science fiction in this conversation and its role in preventing catastrophes with self-preventing prophecies and in pushing civilization forward. But I'm, I'm interested in the mechanics of your process for coming up with science fictional ideas. The Da Vinci Institute does a certain amount of consulting work where we will try to prognosticate the future of one industry or another. So I'm curious as to how you assemble the science, economics, philosophy, psychology, and all these other threads and build a coherent story of the future. And, and when you've done so, do you have any way of testing those things? Well, uh, well, you know, Time Magazine and actually four or five different uh, magazines and sites have rated my novel Earth as one of the uh, ten best at predicting the future. Uh, interestingly enough, in several of them, it's the only one on the list uh, that's on all the other lists. Uh, I didn't, I, I mean, you know, I'm saying that, it's true, bragging is not nice, but, you know, they get to set the background for, you know, for my answer to you, which is that the standard science fiction answer is um, we don't try to predict in science fiction. It's, it's not our central obsession. The highest form of science fiction is what I've called the self-preventing prophecy. Um, that that so um, stirs people with its warning that they act to make sure it never happens. I've mentioned uh, the self-preventing prophecies that help to prevent nuclear war, are helping to um, uh, invigorate the environmental movement so that as we developed towards being interplanetary, we um, don't, don't poison our home. Um, the granddaddy of all self-preventing prophecies was, of course, George Orwell's 1984. Uh, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of people were stirred to um, say, I'm going to spend at least some of my energy for the rest of my life helping to prevent that from happening. And in normal times, the difference between a decent Republican and a decent Democrat is which direction you think Big Brother is trying to encroach from. A decent Republican legitimately is afraid of, of being bullied by um, snooty academics and faceless government bureaucrats. Uh, a decent Democrat is, is concerned about the enemy of freedom for uh, 6,000 years and 99% of cultures, um, oligarchs, inheritance brats, um, uh, the rich trying to cheat, and, and faceless corporations. It happens, I believe, one of those groups is more right than the others now, but that doesn't mean that the other isn't right in principle and not on various occasions. The problem with our current era is that we've forgotten that Big Brother could come from any direction, including the aristocracy that we deem harmless. Now, I'm not sure that I, in that um, 
notion of talking about the self-preventing prophecy that I've actually answered your question. But I think it's very important. I think the most important concept for people to have that's an extremely difficult one, you would think, and yet most Americans seem to grasp the concept, is that of the positive sum game. Now, uh, Robert Wright wrote a book called Non-Zero that I highly recommend and will probably be linked below um, that explains the difference between a zero-sum game and a positive-sum game. And most human civilizations were zero-sum. You could only win by making someone else lose. And many sports are like that. And, uh, of course, the marketplace often seems like that. Politics often seems like that. But... If you have a well-designed civilization that encourages both creative competition and cooperation, you can create a situation like we've seen, especially, certainly across the last 250 years for some people, but especially across the last 60 or so, in which most people benefit from trying to win by making everyone win. The cliche is a rising tide uh, lifts all boats. It doesn't explain much. But the positive sum game is, is one in which I'm playing the game, I want to win more than you do, but I want you to win too. I want to be rich in a civilization filled to the brim with almost entirely with rich people. And to some extent, that's what we've done. We just haven't done it well enough yet. So that also tees up another question that I had almost perfectly. So in one of your podcasts, I, I believe it was the Singularity Podcast with Socrates, you said that owing to your cosmopolitan upbringing in California, was it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 uh, I was raised in the lower left corner where, you know, the continent is tipped and everything loose rolled down that way. That's right, that's right. <laughs> Robert Heinlein, Robert Heinlein uh, wrote a story called, and he built a crooked house. Wonderful, wonderful story. Um, in which the whole, the first couple paragraphs are about how everyone knows that Californians are crazy, but we keep the violent cases in L.A. County. Angelino's <laughs> glory in the reputation, but they, 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 keep the, they keep the extreme cases at Hollywood. Hollywood's uh, people flounce around and, 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 and preen in pride at the appellation, but they keep the, they keep the really awful cases up in uh, Tahunga Canyon. In Tahunga Canyon, nobody speaks of Little Tribuco Canyon. No one speaks of it at all. <laughs> Wonderful opening. He was probably the greatest master of opening stories and opening novels. When I, when I teach creative writing, I, I ask my students, retype the opening page of a dozen Heinlein stories and novels. You'll understand how he did it, but you'll only understand it by retyping, not by reading it, because it's a magical incantation. If you read it, it, you'll just enjoy it. But if you retype it, then the nerve impulses will pass through your fingers, and you'll say, oh, that's how he did it. Now, mind you, the last third of most Highline novels were utter crap. 
<laughs> he didn't know how to end a story worth beans. Um, which is the opposite of me. I have terrible time starting getting started on novels and stories. Um, but I, I finished them great. We would have collaborated very well. Oh, no doubt about that. Yeah, Highland, truly one of the greats. What, my, my question was, how do you define a civilization and, and what's required to sustain and advance one? How do you define a civilization? <laughs> well, you know, there have been many people who have tried to talk about the utility, best utility for the best number of people. Um, Jeremy Bentham and all that. Um, uh, in my opinion, that plays a role. It certainly is a metric of a decent civilization. If you've offered the largest number of entities the best opportunity to um, succeed at, at leveraging their talents and skills and improving their existence. Um, I, I consider that to be a major goal. I don't think it's an absolute definition of a successful civilization, and one could see a trap where that was utterly paternalistic and controlling. For example, another dystopia that is coming far more likely with every passing day, um, one of my favorite authors, Aldous Huxley, uh, Brave New World, uh, in which everyone's pretty damn happy. I mean, I'd rather live there than in 1984. That's right. for absolute sure. Um, and they even allow argument. They even allow you to, um, you know, Mustafa Mann, world controller, played by Leonard Nimoy, um, says, you know, someday this is going to change because someday one of you rebels is going to come up with a convincing case, but not today. Um, so you have a situation in which um, you could have a rigid tyranny that makes everyone happy. So I don't think that maximum utility thing is enough by itself. What I, I consider to be an underspoken sign of a utopia is the ability to continue to argue over whether it's a utopia. The ability to back out of a corner, to back out of a mistake or a trap. And that ability subsumes some of the things that are more crudely stated in our current value system as maximizing diversity. Now, mind you, I actually believe in this expansion of inclusion thing that Americans do and have done for 250 years and is part of our ferment right now. I'm all in favor of it, and some of the greatest American heroes helped to move that along. But my reason isn't just freedom and justice for all. My reason is also that when you have maximized free diversity, operating in some degree of, you know, not at each other's throats, then you have maximized the reciprocal criticism that is the fundamental of our greatest invention, which is reciprocal accountability. Freedom and all of that stuff is great, 
But it's not as fundamental as people say. Uh, a lot of the, our adversaries on this planet have learned how to say, that's your value system. The Chinese say that now. That's your value system. We, we value serenity and, and, um, and, and uh, what's another word for that? Uh, Equanimity. Yeah, the, the, uh, the Muslims who oppose the West, they say, we have a different value system. And under your value system of freedom and diversity, you are hypocrites for criticizing us for, re for eliminating the freedom of our women. Oh, that's, that's, that's a lot to wrap your head around. That's what Karl Popper called the paradox of tolerance. Yes, exactly. And the answer to that is that freedom is necessary in order for you to get the diversity of opinion and the diversity of research and, and fact use that gives you the real thing that is the invention of the Enlightenment, the real thing that was the invention of the Periclean Enlightenment uh, in Athens and in Florence, and the thing that has given made us the most creative society in all of history, and that is the free flow of reciprocal criticism. You see, human beings are inherently delusional. That's a fundamental fact. Every person of every political stripe who you meet will say that. Only they believe that their political opponents are the ones who are delusional, and they are among the few who see, what's, who see with clear eyes. Well, we're all messed up. We're all delusional. But we don't share the same delusions. So in a society of freedom and ferment and diversity and freedom of, of, of reciprocal criticism, we can point out each other's delusions. I can see yours, you can see mine. Grudgingly, I will accept the criticism that you offer, in part because I am wise and I was trained by science to accept criticism, and I've learned and I preach to my students that criticism is the only known antidote to error, and the only way you can become a great science fiction author. But wisdom only makes me receptive to criticism only so far, and the same with great scientists. I accept your criticism because it's the law. I cannot suppress you. I can unfriend you. And that's a problem, actually, because we're getting these Nuremberg rallies of people who reinforce each other's delusions and they refuse to accept the outside criticism that would expose their errors. And so the great advantage of our system that delusions are exposed to accountability and error, uh, error correction, criticism, error correction. This is being hampered, and our enemies are helping to make it happen. So, David, um, we, we've just gone through um, one of the most unique periods in all history. The coronavirus will go down in history as one of the most expensive crisis in all history. Uh, very likely accounting for inflation, it'll be more expensive than World War II. Um, and I'm, I'm wanting to pick your brain a little bit about uh, some of the changes that you see resulting from uh, going from pre-COVID to post-COVID world and uh, what it's gonna, likely gonna be like coming out the backside. 
Well, you know, one point that was made at the beginning of this whole thing was that the um, even if our response to COVID-19 is exaggerated, uh, it's a damn useful exercise. We're finding out that we were not ready. And the degrees to which we had gotten ready were thrown away. So... Um, there's a short story of mine that's that's particularly relevant to this called the giving plague and you guys can do a, I hope you're keeping notes of the things that I want you to, to link to oh we've got a lot of notes here okay so um, the giving plague uh, is about a very very unusual type of virus but it goes through the possibilities of other plagues going on in the background and um the fact is that that uh, if you amortize some of the costs of COVID as, as us getting, uh, taking this sort of thing much more seriously with a disease that does not have as great a death rate as some that we might have in the future. Now, mind you, the death rate is 10 times worse than a bad flu by any measure. But the thing that terrifies me the most about COVID-19 is not the death rate per se. It's going down because the doctors are simply better at, with, at their job. Uh, it's not because the infections have been going down. Um, but they're better at treating it and having people survive. But the thing that worries me the most is the ancillary damage, which we is hard to trace and it's been hard to nail down. But the preliminary signs are that a great many people, including the asymptomatic, have suffered some degree of permanent damage, neurological or in their livers or their kidneys or in their uh, intestinal tracts. And uh, this is frightening. This is frightening to me. Um, and we don't know yet about its recurrence rate. And certainly I am not sanguine about a um, vaccine because people have been trying to come up with vaccines for coronaviruses half of all the common colds for a great long time. And they've been trying to come up with one for AIDS for 30 years. Now, that doesn't mean they'll fail. But it does mean that it's probably a good idea to try to use public health methods to limit the number of our fellow citizens who actually get infected by this thing. I don't know if that answered your question because I think you were going at an angle to what I talked about. Yeah, there's there's lots of responses to this um, in everything from economic issues of um, people moving out of inner cities to um, a lot of nationalism uh, tendencies to um, oh just. Uh, kind of the way our, our schools are being run and how that's going to change and um, and even to the point of um, how this changes your job as a storyteller because uh, uh, how does it change the definition of a, of a hero of a, of a villain of, of a kind of our moral consciousness uh, moving through a disaster like this how do those metrics get reset well, I mean, our maturity is certainly being challenged. Our sense of unity, uh, both as a nation and as a world people, um, 
the uh, question of whether or not individuals owe their society and the surrounding civilization that's been very good for them and coddled them and protected them, uh, whether, whether something is owed. You know, John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Well, that's uh, hardly a very common spirit we see right now. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't know where this is going to go. I'm a science fiction author. I explore, I explore dark scenarios, and the giving plague certainly um, will offer folks some food for thought. So, is is in your mind is the uh, the economic devastation greater than uh, the the loss of life? Oh, you know what? Look, the the stimulus bill, the first one, um, managed to keep the economy going. Uh, money velocity did not drop to zero. Money velocity has fallen um, dramatically ever since we started doing supply-side experiments. Every single supply-side uh, tax bill resulted in lower money velocity. Um, but the $600 per week and the, and the stimulus managed to keep money in the working class's pocket, and as a result... Uh, they were able to pay their bills, and um, uh, and money velocity didn't go to zero. If money velocity goes to zero, then the economy collapses. Now, uh, should we worry about the um, deficit? Um, well, you know, it, it, it's not a good thing. I mean, there's this new modern monetary theory that says that uh, you can just print money forever. Well, I don't agree with that. Um, the, those who preach for fiscal restraint are in no position to preach since they have been the greatest wastrels across the last 50 years. Um, but uh, I think that it is terribly important that we not allow money velocity to go to zero because then those people who do have jobs uh, will lose them. Uh, and then we'll be in real trouble. Uh, but do I think that the uh, damage is irreparable? Absolutely not. I, 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 I you know, um, if you if you take a look at what Japan and Germany looked like in 1945, and then looked at them 20 years later. Uh, you would realize that it is possible for humans to come back from considerably worse than we've been experiencing. Right, right. That I completely agree. It, it seems to me that a prerequisite for that is the, the people involved have to really want to advance and want to overcome those, those tribulations. So do you think that we have that same spirit, that same... Oh, well, we have potential. The problem is that when you're in a phase of the American Civil War, all people can think about is the Civil War. Now, people have asked me about, you know, the phases of the Civil War. I have a link that you can go to. But the, the actually, what we call the American Civil War was phase four. 
it goes back to 1778 when Cornwallis went south and had uh, the, uh, uh, his greatest successes. The greatest successes that the British had in the revolution were in the south because they knew they would find folks down there who were romantics because that's the underlying culture. It's not slavery per se, although slavery certainly was the great crime. But uh, Mark Twain blamed the Civil War on the romantic novels of Sir Walter Scott, which everybody in the South, every white person who could read and, or, or sit by a cracker barrel and listen to somebody who could read, you know, um, just absorbed them, and they were all propaganda for feudalism. No, that was later, not in 1778, but, but Cornwallis came south because he knew he could recruit whole armies of Tories who remained loyal to the king. That's romanticism. Whereas in the north, there was always a sense of uh, nobody can tell me what to do. Um, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to make myself, make my own way in this world. Um, and... And so what you have is a, you know, I believe we are, I, that's a rather long aside, I believe we are in phase eight of the American Civil War, and it's a bad one. It's, it's, it's a bad one. There are some science fiction novels about what if this turned into a hot phase nine. One of the best is, um, is called uh, Tears of Abraham by Sean T. Smith. Uh, another is Our War by Craig DeLuey. I'll try to provide links for those. Uh, and there are several others uh, portraying what would happen in a, if, if this civil war went hot. And that should be our top priority to prevent it. Unfortunately, there are some maestros overseas who want nothing more than to see it turn hot. And we have some crazies here in this country, actually on both sides. Who would like to see it go on? Um, well, you bring up some some really good points here. the The whole um, uh, the nature of having a pandemic like this is so different from um, other types of threats that. Um, and and as, working as a futurist, I often get asked the question: Did I did I predict the, uh, the pandemic? And um, virtually every futurist had a list of um, wildcard scenarios, and pandemics was certainly on the list. But the one thing that uh, we never uh, were able to predict is the the rule set that came along with this. Um, and and I uh, use this example. I mean, the way this is transmitted is 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 unique, and it could have been transmitted from mother to child. It could have been uh, more more viral in kids than adults. It, but um, if, as an example, it was transmitted through hair follicles, would uh, would everybody agree with having to shave their heads and shave their bodies? Well, uh, the the. Uh being spread by exhaled uh, droplets carrying viral particles is not that rare. I mean, measles is far more contagious because uh, it can withstand drying out um, and float in the air for two hours before it settles to the floor. 
Um, but um, the ability of COVID-19 or any, almost any coronavirus to um, remain viable in even the smallest water droplets, this is not that unusual. If you look at the public health measures that were enacted during the 1918 flu, flu epidemic, and you look at photographs from that time, people were wearing masks. And the rules in many cities were, you damn well will wear a mask or you're going to be arrested. And being arrested in those days was pretty darn brutal. I mean, there was a nightstick applied to the side of your head. Um, so, you know, this is not that unusual. Um, the, you know, those who are saying that this is a restriction on my freedom, well, okay. I mean, you know, you said the same thing about seatbelts 30 years ago. Um, and perhaps you'll say the same thing uh, 30 years from now when everybody gets the jock itch and you want to go around naked. <laughs> I mean, you know, and the law says you can't go around naked, but the jock itch, you know, I have a personal right to air things out because <laughs> otherwise, you know, and, and they say you got to keep that covered because the jock itch spreads by um, through the optic nerve if people see your junk. I think I think um, we know why David wanted to turn his camera off before we started recording. <laughs> No, I'm just, I'm just coming up with a, I'm showing you how it's done. <laughs> you know, you take, you take something ridiculous in the, in the modern era, but you extrapolate it, you take a look at the hypocrisy, and then you, then you say, what is a situation in which it weren't hypocrisy? Yeah, huh? that's right. You know, what, what if a disease spread by seatbelts? What if a disease uh, was cured by, uh, by, by smog? Um, you know, uh, we, we, we have to be a people who are able to engage in reciprocal criticism and discover, discover errors. And when we're obsessed with reciting incantations or worse, um, uh, spewing um, JPEGs that were concocted in a Kremlin basement and saying, you see? <laughs> Uh, and by the way, it's not all of those JPEGs that are coming out of, the, of Kremlin basements are all on one side. They want us at each other's throats. So some of the, some of the lefty ones also, I highly suspect, will discover, came out of, uh, came out of uh, former KGB officers. It's, it's, it's so bizarre to me that, you know, um, here this guy... Putin called the fall of the Soviet Union history's greatest tragedy. He and a hundred other former commissars and KGB agents who were all raised reciting Leninist incantations and catechisms all their lives um, take over and just change the symbols. They just change the symbols. They get rid of the hammer and sickle and start wearing orthodox crosses. And all of a sudden, they're okay guys. I mean, the KGB, they didn't even fire anybody. They just changed the name. Wow. It's, it's pretty <laughs> and amazing how much that would you. Did you ever see movie called Blast from the Past, Brendan Fraser? Oh, yes. Yes. It was actually quite fun. 
Well, uh, Christopher Walken plays the dad. And he's, you know, kind of a fanatic anti-communist. And eventually they get him out of the, him and his wife out of the bomb shelter. Um, and he's not a bad guy. He saved his wife and child through his paranoia. But the 30-year clock was not necessary. In any event, there's a point in, toward the end of the film in which he says, so you're telling me that one day the Soviet Politburo just threw up their hands and say, we give up, we surrender. And Brendan Fraser's character says, yeah, that's about it, Dad. And Christopher Walken said the most prophetic and chilling thing that I've seen to come out of any movie in a long time. He shakes his head and chuckles and he says, you gotta hand it to them. <laughs> oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! And nobody is talking about how incredible a science fiction predictive moment that was. <laughs> so um, we're, we're running close on our time here. I just wanted to uh, end with one um, kind of a, a big question here. What, what is it that scares you about the future? Oh, well, you know, the Fermi Paradox. I mean, I, ha I know people in Oxford and Cambridge and other people who claim that, that um, there's all sorts of evidence that we're just going to fail. And if you take a look at human history, if we were to repeat the pattern of 6,000 years that, uh, that existed in 99% of human cultures, that um, caters to the fantasies of males because we're all descended from the guys, the thugs who took other men's women and wheat. We're all descended from the harems that these guys gathered. So that explains male fantasies. We all think we deserve a harem. Um, and so, you know, under those circumstances, to believe you can create a civilization like Star Trek, like we imagine Star Trek, one of the few optimistic futures that science fiction produces amid all this, this miasma of dystopias and would-be self-preventing prophecies that don't help, and a few that do. I mean, uh, Stargate uh, and Babylon 5 were among the few other that showed human beings actually learning from their mistakes and actually trying to become better. And still having problems, yeah, sure. But, yeah, my biggest fear is that we would lose the confidence and the sense of pride in what we've accomplished that's required in order to move ahead. Uh, what I would say to those who are trying to expand the circle of inclusion in causes that are absolutely justified, because past efforts to expand the circles were only partly successful and need, 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 need to be reinvigorated and, 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 and the circle needs to be broadened more. For God's sake, have a little bit of a sense of how special this time is, how special you are. It's okay to be angry at the injustice, but you absolutely need to have a song in the heart, in your heart about the process that made the miracle that's you.
because no other human civilization was ever so mad, so insane as to believe in human perfectibility, in the possibility that we might achieve real justice. No one else ever thought that. They would have laughed in your face. The very thought that you insanely believe it is achievable is one of the great miracles of that our ancestors struggled desperately to achieve. You are a product of all their efforts. And I'm not saying that just to the activists in the street right now. I'm saying it to everybody, including their opponents. Grow up and recognize what a miracle you are. What a delicate, fragile miracle we have because the galaxy is waiting for us. The fairy paradox says nobody else has gotten out there yet and everybody else has failed. And if they have failed, they're waiting for someone to get out there and be the elder race. Well, David, that's a, that's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Okay. All right, you guys. Um, send, me, send me a list of links that you want and best of luck. We will. Right. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it, David. Thank yeah. you. It was fantastic. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>